0: Noise, digital noise, digital noise, digital noise, digital noise. That's what we're here for. <laughs> it's Aaron joining me again. Thank you. You're welcome. Good to be here, always. Sorry I gave you a, i I've made him do two shows in a row. I was like, oh, I know you just finished watching a whole stack of movies. Is there any chance you could take another giant stack of movies? Yeah, and I see you looking at the stack next to me a little... No, like- no, no. That's already claimed by someone else. Don't worry about it. <laughs> Don't worry about it. You're not... You, you, I, I wasn't going to do that to you three weeks in a row, but we did have a hell of a stack. It's Christmas time, so they're trying to pump push out a lot of stuff. A lot of it was sort of, can you please review this as soon as possible? <laughs> so there's going to be, this is going to be one of those shows that there's going to be some stuff, a lot of stuff on it you didn't even get to see along with all the stuff you did. This is going to be a big show. Woo-woo. A lot of stuff to cover here. Uh, so with no further ado, let's just get into the reviews. First off, uh, I did get sent to uh, titles that got released previous this year, and a sort of like, hey, we want you to co- mention. We'll send these to you, which I actually asked for when they originally came out. And they didn't <laughs> send to me. Uh, if you know, if you mention them, you know, it's like good Christmas presents. I was like, you know, you know, both of these are good Christmas presents, so I will mention them. And the first one of those is the film that. is the first movie I I ever remember seeing in the theater. Really? I doubt it's my first movie I ever saw, because, you know, you probably probably sell some Disney shit or something. I have no idea. But the first movie I distinctly remember seeing was my dad took me to see a re-release of One Million Years B.C. Which, of course, you have a whole different impression of as a uh, post-pubescent adult with the (laughs) astonishing Raquel Welch wearing a fur bikini running around in historically not even close to accurate uh, prehistoric times. That's okay for a bikini. You know, it's it's humans versus dinosaurs, basically. Or it's more accurately, it's really humans versus humans, as you've got the, the main character guy who uh, uh, is a caveman, who's kind of kicked out of his tribe, uh, by a tougher caveman and he ends up running into a, a a much more peace and love tribe with the Raquel Welch's end that all have blonde hair. His tribe did not. So it's like, ooh, blonde hair. Hot. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and he hooks up with her and he proves himself to be a hero in that group. And then, of course, it all comes back around to, like, you know, tribal war, basically. Well, you know, on, uh, while in the meantime, there's a mixture of Really spectacular Ray Harryhausen animated effects, arguably some of his best work. Ooh. And then some stuff that was like okay, they just used an iguana and green screen. <laughs> <laughs> they, they glued cardboard on top of its head. And Harryhausen was not available that week. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I don't. I just you know we need another dinosaur here, so I guess we were going to throw that in here. Uh, this Blu-ray comes with both the original international cut, which is about 100 minutes, and the U.S. cut, which is about 91 minutes. You may have, you probably have only seen the United States cut, and the other ones like stuff that was questionable at the time, and now is. Like shows on ABC Family, you know? You're just like, okay, not very questionable. There's there's no hot Raquel Welch sex, sex scenes, is what I'm saying, if that's <laughs> what you're getting into this for. But uh, there's a commentary by film historic, uh, historian Tim Lucas. There's an animated montage of the posters of images for promotional materials and publicity things, uh, including the international trailer. There's a uh, 2002 conversation with Raquel Welch about her time on this, uh, who was I've always been very uh, embarrassed about being in the film, but come on. It is, regardless, one of the films she's best known for. I did not know that. Oh yeah. Well, I mean, it was, you know, it was cheesecake, and sure, it's a corny sure. film. Uh, there's a uh, 13-minute interview with Ray Harryhausen about it. There's a 16-minute interview with the actress Martine Beswick, who played kind of the second female lead in this, and then the U.S. trailer. So, really, this is a pretty good deal, and the fix-up is gorgeous. It just looks beautiful, um, and it's a fun movie of all those dumb like 60s, dinosaur movies, this is one of the ones that I'd actually say well worth going out of your way for and even owning a copy of.
1: I'm a little jealous. I've never actually seen this and this is usually the kind
0: of movie that's up my alley. Sorry. (laughs) I'll pass that one on to you so you can check it out. Uh, And the other one that I got sent for the the Christmas consideration was one I was really upset they didn't send to me initially when it was coming out because I was like, man, that's one of the ones I need. That's one of the bucket list movies to put in my collection was the Coen Brothers movie Barton Fink, which a lot of people, people either think it's their very best film, or it's their very worst film. I think it's their most interesting film. It's definitely their most divisive film. Uh, 1991 film with a young John Turturro in the title role, the, that is the person's name, Barton Fink, who's a uh, kind of pretentious uh, New York City playwright who has just had a monster hit on, on Broadway, but nobody cares outside of New York. Except he gets an offer by a rich film studio in Hollywood to come out and crank out scripts for them, basically. And he is talked by his agent into doing it, and he goes out there, but he decides he's a writer of the common people. That's his whole <laughs> thing. And so he stays in a not-the-super-expensive Hollywood hotel uh, as he tries desperately to come up with something to write on a wrest- wrestling pick, which he knows absolutely nothing about. and. The real interesting thing is his relationship with his next door neighbor played by uh John Goodman, who is just incredible in this movie, who is indeed that common man that Fink says he wants to be more in communication with and listen to. But the, every time they get together, he's basically, you know, Barton Fink genuinely likes this guy, but doesn't really listen to anything he has to say. He's just so goddamn polite, John Goodman's character, you know, just so sweet that he's like. Brighton Fink just ends up lecturing him about how important it is that the common man be represented in today's and cutting him off regularly as he's trying to actually tell him about his life. All that plays into a bizarre third act. Yeah. Uh, uh, that is either going to completely lose you or you'll think it's the most awesome thing ever. Yeah, so
1: I, I haven't seen this movie in, like, probably since it originally came out on Blu-ray. I, I think I saw it back when the Cones released their whole set. Um my only memory of this is that this is when I realized that John Goodman was actually a great actor.
0: Yeah. Yeah. This was definitely one of the big ones for a lot of people because he was still doing Roseanne yeah. and like we're all thought of him as that guy on Roseanne. Exactly. And this was like, holy shit. I mean, he was good in raising Arizona, but this was, yeah, this is special. Yeah. Um, it, it, it's a, it's a complex film that I don't think even the Coen brothers know precisely what they were trying to say with it. I've read, seen a lot of interviews with them about it. I've read a lot of stuff. And everybody's like, including the Coen's, like, we put a lot of subtext in here, but you never get the feeling that it's not just one thing. It's like, there's a ton of shit. Like, there's this inexplicable, but still unmissable. Thing about the Holocaust in World War Two that's yes. in here, but not everything fits into that frame. This is the one thing I still ask the question: What was the significance of the picture of the girl on the beach? That is a big deal in this. It's hanging in his room by the typewriter, and then like one of the last shots of the film is like an actual girl in the same pose on the beach. And I'm still just I have no idea what that's supposed to mean, <laughs> but it's a beautiful shot. It's like yeah. one of those things that feels so circular. Anyway, there's an interview with uh, John Turturro about this. There's an interview with Mike. Michael Lerner, uh, uh, there's, who's one of the writers, is interviewing executive producer Ben Barinholtz. There's an interview with composer Carter Burwell. Great score to this thing. Um, there's a series of deleted scenes that don't really add a, a bunch. Most of them are extended scenes, really.
1: Well, this is back when the Coen brothers were really, uh, to use an play word, were anal about what they shot. They storyboarded everything, mm-hmm. were very careful and were very precise. So they shot what they wanted to use in the movie and only that.
0: Yeah. No, you're absolutely right. They did. And there was very little in the way of extra stuff to fit in there. Like I said, usually it was just there's one interesting bit where towards the end, the elevator guy basically gets his head cut off. It's a kind of a graphic (laughs) sequence that they cut out of the the final some of the final sequences. And you're like, ah, okay, I kind of see why you took that out. But uh, I just want to point out as well, Michael Lerner, as sort of the Hollywood exec guy in here, is so great. Judy Davis has a wonderful little role in here uh, that kind of feels like she's playing her same character from Naked Lunch in a weird sort of way. Um, John Mahoney is in this. Tony Shalhoub, uh John Polito, Steve Buscemi, very young Steve Buscemi playing Chet, who gets the biggest laughs from the brief periods he's in the film with anybody that's in it. Uh, yeah, uh, Francis McDormand uh, plays a voice in here. Um, yeah, this is. One of those, you have to see it to believe it, and you're either totally going to fall in love with it, or you just be like, I don't get it. Well,
1: and even if you don't get it, it's worth watching. It's
0: yeah. It's something you should see. It's a gorgeous-looking film. Holy shit. All right, so moving on to stuff you have seen, uh, the Criterion release for this week is Terry Gilliam's first solo-directed film from 1977, the movie Jabberwocky.
1: Which feels so much like a Monty Python movie, just minus half the cast.
0: But at the same time, it's like... I think the biggest problem with Jabberwocky at the time when it came out with audiences – because I don't think American audiences really grabbed onto it the way they did the other Python films – was that it's not quite a Python film, even more – as much as not having the other characters. It's like the humor's not quite Python. There's so much of Gilliam's much darker sense of humor and yeah. this and bleaker sense of humor that – It doesn't quite, even though it's very absurd at points, it never quite hits those Python levels of absurdity.
1: It's weird. It feels like it straddles the line. Yeah. Because clearly this is Gilliam's first movie because you can see that he hasn't quite gotten the, uh, gotten how to master a story arc yet. It's still, it's this collection of bits and funny scenes and they're hilarious and like I watched this with my brother-in-law, we laughed the whole way through it, but it's It still doesn't
0: tell a full story almost. Yeah. I mean, I mean, it does, but it's, you're right. It feels more like a I have this idea for a funny sketch here. Yeah. But like I said, it's just so, it's almost unbearably bleak towards at points and just like very like, isn't society fucking wrong and fucked up, you know, very Gilliam (laughs) type uh, sentiments with, but that, like I said, don't quite play at that level of absurdity that Python's normally known for. Although I will say I've,
1: I really liked how they did the Jabberwocky attacks. Oh, it was great. They were really cool. Yeah. And the entire movie, because they built up to it so much, I kept waiting and going, God, the Jabberwocky's going to look like crap. It's got to look like crap. This is an old, low-budget movie. It really looked good. It was fun. It It was a, I mean, you
0: never believed it was a real thing. No. no. But it was like a fun, very creative looking creation that they made for it. Uh, and of course, Michael Palin from Python plays the lead character here as a young barrel maker who's in love with, right, this girl named Griselda. She is clearly the ugliest woman anywhere in his area, but. Is also the shittiest person. Yeah. She and her old family are just awful. She has like very little regard for him. She basically puts up with him and that's about it. And he's determined they're going to, they're in love and they're going to be married. Uh, and he ends up g- getting into a whole situation where he goes to the big city from his village. Everyone's in fear from the Jabberwocky, this mysterious monster. Um, the king is uh, the great name, Bruno the Questionable, <laughs> is uh, having tournaments to have the knights fight each other in jousting tournaments to determine who will send to slay the beast and that winner will get the princess. And of course, at one point, someone points out We're kind of killing off most of our army here. In the (laughs) gooeyest way possible. Yeah, they're like (laughs) watching and just getting sprayed with blood like they're at a guar show. Uh, And and Michael Palin's character, uh, Dennis, which is like the most Python name ever, uh, ends up like the princess... Kind of thinks he's someone else and falls in love with him and keeps putting these, like, in, nothing, nothing he can do can dissuade her from Yeah,
1: because at this point, he's still clearly in love with Griselda, who yeah. hates him with a passion.
0: Yeah. But it's this absurd comedy of errors. And he, of course, ends up getting kind of accidentally sucked into the final fight versus the Jabberwock. Uh, and, the, you know, the the plot is neither here nor there. Yeah, it, it doesn't matter. It do, It doesn't really matter. It's... It's funny, is what it comes down to.
1: It did contain one of my favorite running gags that I've seen in a while which is he's given a potato mm-hmm. in the very beginning just as a throwaway. Like, literally, Griselda throws it out the window as trash, and he takes it as this wonderful, heartfelt gift. Mm. And every single person who sees this potato that grows increasingly more and more and more rancid as the movie goes along thinks it's the most amazing, wonderful, lovely gift that the movie you ever could be given just because they're that hungry and that
0: poor. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, that is a good bit. Uh, this being Criterion, of course, it's pretty, pretty good, uh, uh about the best version you can get of this. There's audio commentary ported over from the DVD with Terry Gilliam and Michael Palin, which in and of itself, of course, makes it worth owning because those two guys, any two members of Python talking in a room is like, wouldn't you want to have that recording in that, your collection? Yeah. Uh, There's a 41-minute Jabberwocky Good Nonsense that's a retrospective featurette with brand new interviews with various members of the cast and crew. Uh, There's a 1998 22-minute audio interview with the director of photography, Terry Bedford, uh, there's a 15-minute uh, va- interview with Valerie Charlton, The Making of a Monster, uh, which is, the course, the person who made The Jabberwocky. Uh, there, there's a three-minute original opening that was edited for UK audiences. There's a sketch-to-screen comparison, which is the slideshow concept design, sketches and storyboards versus the actual uh, film stuff. There's a two-minute reading by Michael Palin and Annette Badland, who also starred in the film, of Lewis Carroll's Jabberwocky, the original poem that this was Uh, uh, kind of based on. (laughs) Uh, And yeah, I think they put this together into a very solid package. Yeah, yeah, I'm with it. It's one of those ones a lot of people who love Python don't even know this exists. Or love Gilliam don't even know this exists. And what's
1: really interesting, too, is to see how even though this movie is as old as it is, how the creature design has kind of woven its way into the fabric of consciousness. Mm -hmm. Even the new uh, Alice in Wonderland movie that had the Jabberwocky in it looks remarkably like just a high budget, slick version of this creature.
0: Agreed. Yeah. Uh, All right. So next up, you did not get to see, this is one of these ones. They were like, can you please review this shortly, Uh, (laughs) called The White King. This is a 2016 British sci-fi drama that uh, is based on a novel, the same name by, uh, I'm going to pronounce this wrong because there's accent marks all over, but Georgie Dragoman, uh, (laughs) that apparently the book is (laughs) very different than the the movie they ended up coming up with. It's much more sort of like contemplative and philosophical and decidedly does not take place in Britain or whatever, whatever. Uh Uh-oh, phone alert, phone alert. Somebody forgot to turn their phone volume down. Sorry about that. Look what happened. Oh, God, and now I... (laughs) Now he can't turn it off. Well, we're going to be reviewing his phone ringer, which I kind of feel is a weird choice, quite frankly, for a phone ring. You know, of everything you could have picked, that was the one. Eric? It's actually an alarm. It's it, a Oh, I, yeah. Why yeah. did you set an alarm? Ugh, my wife's medication. Ah, uh, okay, fair enough. <laughs> Sorry well, about that. No, that's okay. Now we know. I, I was
1: I was so prepared to turn my phone off and set it to do not disturb so it didn't even vibrate.
0: Well, I forgot about the alarm. That's that I've been there. <laughs> I have done that myself. Anyway, uh yeah, so it's on the White King uh follows a young boy Dejata in this fictional fascist society that's not like a not based on the nazis like cuz there's like cuz it definitely I mean there's people of all races now, is together here
1: not based on the nazis or is it based on the nazis but just not really not
0: nazis? really it feels more like it's it's a uh, a dictatorship that doesn't seem to use racism as one of its primary okay. facets you know um but he's a 12 year old boy uh this dystopian world he lived in called homeland uh where he lives in in poverty with his uh, his uh mom and initially his father who in the beginning after a very bucolic nature scene out with the family gets carted away by men in black who politely are like yeah, say goodbye to your family tell them whatever and he's like yeah i just i they need me to go work with them and it's very clear that He's being arrested. They're just You'd being cool about, about it. it. You're wondering why, and it turns out why is because he's the son-in-law of one of the leaders of this whole movement, played by Jonathan Price, uh, who doesn't much care for him. But nonetheless, there's a, there was a grudging amount of like, okay, you're a loudmouth dissident. You're still going to get carted away, but at the very least, we're not going to shoot you in front of your family. That's polite, yeah, as as it is. But this follows the kid as adventure as without his father. Uh, he is just trying to make sense of his life to deal with very violent bullies in the area, uh, to deal with everyone in, in the, the, uh, immediate vicinity s- spurning his mother, basically not even letting him shop at the local store anymore. Um, and her trying to figure, well, what are we, getting get to the point of desperation, what are we going to do? You know, being unwilling to use the connection to her father, but finally having no choice, but to try and, and, and find a a way to beg him for help. Um, And there's a a lot of, I guess, I don't know. There's a lot of like, so what exactly? I mean, yes, the dystopian dictatorships are bad, sure. But what are you getting at exactly here? It feels vague to the point of like, I really am unclear on on what your larger point is. That's the
1: problem I often run into. Anytime you adapt a really contemplative novel is... You run into turning into something that's just generic. Uh, It's like, okay, great. Yes, we know that they're bad.
0: Yeah. Continue. We've seen that before. Yeah, no, agreed. And I didn't think this really brought a lot of new interesting stuff to it. In fact, the most interesting thing it had was, you know, that robot that's been in the news lately, like that's super realistic and like, Actually, said something about, like, well, maybe we should wipe out all of humanity. That would uh, solve your problems. I thought you were talking about the sex robot that no. got broken at the porn. No, the no, no. no. The it's the so one, it's like the actual AI one. That yeah, yeah. Out. The yeah. AI one, it's in the movie. <laughs> yeah. Oh. I, it like plays a small role in the movie. And you're no. like, well, that's fucking weird. What is that thing doing in here? um I immediately have to ask the question, though wouldn't that, since it's
1: such a new AI in age, have affected the way it viewed the world, too? Like, would it know the difference between the real world and being in the movie.
0: I good question. I guess we'll find out when That's why uh, it's going to wipe us out when Skynet takes I, over. I was say this is why it happens right here. The missiles could be hit, hitting uh. right now. We don't even know. Yeah. Could be just they could have just launched. You know, hey, it's okay. God apparently loves Austin, so we'll make it through. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know. <laughs> this this um trailer is uh, this movie. Was overrated by some, underrated by others. I felt kind of in the sort of I'm just glad I watched it, but it didn't really leave a lasting taste in my mouth. Interesting, but hardly essential. Um, I, but you know, don't trust me. I saw a lot of critics who absolutely loved this thing. I just wasn't one of them. All right, let's move on to one we did both see, and that is the, wow, how have I never seen this before film, Animal Factory. I have the exact same feeling about it. Holy shit. I was like, I've I've never even heard of this fucking thing. (laughs) Like when I was watching the trailer, I was
1: going, wait, oh, 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 he's in it. Oh, oh, he's in it too. Oh, that's an ad. Oh,
0: look, it's the only other movie John Connor was in. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, this came out in 2000. Uh, it's a crime film set in San Quentin prison directed by Steve Buscemi, which yeah. is cool. Uh, and it, the main star is Edward Furlong, who's like a young guy. Uh, he's, he's used as an example, basically, for his crimes and thrown in the big house. Uh, for drug possession, and he is like he probably deserves it. But you know, the judge wanted to set an example of prosecuting the son of a rich, rich guy. You well, know, it was
1: one of those he did it. He definitely deserved to be punished, right? But the question is, did he deserve to
0: be punished to the extent to this that degree? He was, well, that's yeah. what these sort of make an example of cases yeah, exactly. are like. But um, when he gets there, he immediately uh, meets up with William Defoe, who takes him under his wing. Right? What could go wrong? Well, weirdly... Nothing, yeah. really.
1: I spent the whole movie waiting for this to do the turn that every other prison movie does, yeah. where Willem Dafoe is ultimately the big
0: bad. This sets up all the cliches of the prison movie and deftly dodges right past yeah. them and sets up the type of film with a, a conclusion I did not see coming at I mean, all. I mean, th- so it still does some of the same
1: old tropes that we see in every sure. other prison film. Yes, prison sucks. Yes, prison makes people worse in a lot of cases. And, and they still do that and show that. But it was really refreshing for Willem Dafoe not to be this evil, manipulative guy just waiting to get a hold of him. Yeah, I mean, he's not a good guy. No, but it's
0: unlike every other prison movie ever made in this scenario. You're like, William Dafoe actually kind of is like, you get the feeling he's like, he's like a young me. You know? <laughs> He's like, I'm kind of treating this guy like my, my adoptive son. And, like, teams would genuinely like this guy. Yeah. And you've got performances in here as well. Danny Trejo, probably. Probably. I mean, this is 2000, so the relatively early role for Trejo, who got a very late start in well, show business.
1: And I know that he got st- he got his start while he was in prison doing, um, working on a film. And my thought was, was this, like, where he initially
0: got his start? I do not know. No, his first film. Film was was Runaway Train. Yeah, he's actually in, in a decent amount of movies. Actually, he started back in 1985. But um, wow, he had a lot more, lot more way off. A lot more films than I thought. My color me wrong. But uh, anyway, <laughs> anyway. Uh, who else was in this thing? Um, God damn it. I had it in uh, a second. Tom Arnold. <laughs> Mickey Oh Moore, my God. Tom Arnold was yeah, playing,
1: phenomenally like, creepy in the this.
0: The psycho Jesus. guy you don't want to fuck with in prison. Uh, John Hurd. Seymour Cassell who's great in this. Uh, this is surprisingly a really good lot yeah. of fun prison movie that like I said kind of defies a lot of expectations that you have about this thing. I completely
1: agree. And I, and I I have to go back to Tom Arnold, who is in all of maybe four minutes of the movie in total, is probably gives him one of the creepiest prison performances ever. Who literally three seconds into his on screen appearance goes, just,
0: you know what? I think I'm gonna rape you <laughs> That's basically what he does yeah pretty much he flat-out is like yeah I'm the guy you've been waiting for to show up this whole film yeah <laughs> <laughs> it, it doesn't appear to like the third act uh, this is an arrow release so it comes with a commentary with one of the producers Eddie Bunker and then with Danny Trejo uh, there is a uh, critic and author uh, Barry Forshaw, who wrote the American Noir the Rough Guide to Crime Fiction talking about Eddie Bunker who passed away in t- 2005 and then a theatrical trailer is all. Also, an insert book booklet with writing and stills. It's not the biggest package they've ever put together, but I suspect there wasn't a lot of stuff to well, grab from this in the first place. it looked
1: really good. And, and amazingly, it made me more interested in Steve Buscemi as a filmmaker. Yeah, me too. I mean, Steve Buscemi's just a fascinating guy. I, mean, <laughs> I just, I never even knew he directed movies. Uh,
0: not directly connected in any way except that both titles evoke animals, um, and that they're both from Arrow, is our next film, Zoology. <laughs> that, that is a, uh, Russian drama, magical realism film. All right. That, I'm really curious how you felt about this. Um, it's one of those films that, like, if I had been in a different mood, I probably would have been completely bored and hated it. But for some reason, I was, like, I was very awake and paying very close attention to it. And I kind of, at the end, came away going, oh, I like that. Really? I can't see re-watching it, but I can. But I liked it. Uh, I didn't mean to interrupt. Please, the plot. Yes. Uh, this middle-aged woman, Natasha, lives alone with her mom in a small seaside town. Uh, her life is extremely boring. She goes to work. She comes home. She goes to the same routine every single day. She has zero friends. In fact, people actively make fun of her and torment her around her, presumably because she's, I guess, less attractive than they are, which is a which question is mark. Not really that true either. Yeah. just Everybody's super shitty. Yeah. It's not a great place to live. No. And, uh, so, something strange happens and you never, it's unclear. I mean, I didn't know till I read like director notes on this, that she wasn't born with this thing, but like, apparently she all of a sudden grows a tail and she hides it, but it starts changing her life in weird, subtle ways. One of the main ones is that the, this guy who's her, her, x-ray technician that she goes into, uh, ha- is kind of fascinated with her and with the tale, and ask, basically asks her out and they get in a relationship together that culminates in a a very (laughs) odd
1: sex scene. (laughs) Like uh, this is one of the rare movies that I think would have been for me. I did not like this at all. Actually, Mm -hmm. I struggled to not fast forward through scenes of it towards the end. I understand. Um, But when I was watching it, I, I felt like if this were the kind of movie that I normally hate, which is that just, Plucky, poppy, fun, uh, fairy tale movie like made for kids. I would have really liked it, okay, because they had a lot of the hallmarks of something like that that would have worked really well. Intended they instead they went through this really odd, artsy, dramatic kind of style to it, and they did a lot of random story choices that I, I guess maybe if I was from Russia and I knew more of the culture, <laughs> it was relevant. I would, I would get. Yeah. They're but, like, oh,
0: this is referring to the Ginzadski incident. Exactly. Like, I'd
1: be like, oh, oh, and then that's brilliant. But coming from the where I come from, I don't know anything about that. And this just did not work for me at all.
0: It's an oddball little drama that's very slow burn that doesn't really come to much. It's just kind of a character piece about this woman who, like, when she starts being more confident in herself, sort of comes out and starts... Like, enjoying, li- actually enjoying life and, you know, putting on makeup and doing her hair and buying clothes. And then it just kind of peters out. Well, and that's the thing, like, ultimately, at the end, I kind of feel like her life
1: got shittier. For having gone through this personal change, yeah. So it wasn't like, yay, she came out of her shell and she had. This yeah, you're Victorian like. So what is your? So what is it was your like, message here? Yeah, she changed, and well, life fucking sucks. So why don't you go back to the way
0: it was? Yeah, it it is indeed a little bit of those sort of those films that are like like, even if something good happens to you, it's all going to end in tears anyway. Yeah. You know, which is the most Russian thing imaginable. (laughs) I've never even thought about that. You're right. Yeah. That
1: that explains it.
0: Dostoevsky would have approved. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, this is another Arrow release. As I said, it's a 12 and a half minute interview with actor Dmitry Groshev in Russian with English subtitles. There is a 24 and a half minute, um, the tale of zoology, which is basically just a look at it from the viewpoint of a film historian, which is weird because this isn't a terribly older film. It just came out recently. Uh, And then just the trailer and insert booklet and what have you. I
1: I will say there's one bit of this movie that I really liked Mm -hmm. is that she keeps running into all these people who are super religious and super conservative, which I I did not know was an aspect of Russian culture was how Christian they were. Yeah. And I mean, I guess depending
0: on where you are, it's yeah. a big country.
1: And it's delightful having everyone spread rumors about this witch with a tail, stealing children. And then she starts to just really get a kick out of it. Cause she is said, witch with a tail and yeah. she starts making the rumors bigger and better and making her seem like even more of a demonic presence. <laughs> it was my
0: favorite part. Um, I agree. That was pretty funny. Yeah. Anyway, let's move on to the movie. I think we both agree is the worst thing we saw this week, even though I know people who love it. I don't understand you. Uh, This movie, the new Brett Gelman uh, comedy drama film, Lemon, is aptly
1: titled. (laughs) I do not have a single redeeming thing I can think of about this movie. I I despised it.
0: Okay. I'm... I'm comedies are tough for me anyway. I've always been like I'm harder on them than anything, but I especially tend to dislike comedies about deeply unpleasant people as the protagonist. You know, you have to be doing something really special to make those type of comedies work for me. And and there are a few out there, but this is one of those following this guy who is a self-involved misanthrope uh, who is just thoroughly unlikable. Isaac who is a drama teacher and kind of an arrogant jackass of one. His girlfriend played by the, the wonderful but often miscast Judy Greer is, uh, uh, is living with him and clearly has – is clearly having an affair and she's a blind uh, lady and like – but it's so obvious that you're like he's more blind than she is that he doesn't see it.
1: Well, so he clearly has mental issues. Like, yeah. like, like, he, he has some kind of an emotional issue. He's on the spectrum. He doesn't understand human – yeah. Uh, he, he doesn't understand human interaction, and quite often he just kind of go d- goes down this route where, like, why are you doing that? And I don't fundamentally understand how you can do that.
0: I mean, he is. He's presented as one of those characters who is, like, clearly on the spectrum, but, like, has channeled it through thinking he's better than absolutely everyone else around him.
1: And, and fundamentally, I have no problem with that. There are a lot of great movies that have autistic characters in them, characters on the spectrum that are really good and make you feel for that character and have a connection with Absolutely, it yeah. The problem here is that yeah. there's no arc. It's just, you come in, it starts that he's a shitty person, yeah. in the middle he's a shitty person, and is, he finally has it out with people around him. He kind
0: of maybe has an exploration with homosexuality, but not really. I mean, yeah, there's a, one of the people who's his student, but also just appears to kind of be there to also make themselves feel also better. Kind of a prick. Yeah, who's is Michael Sarah? who's like, oh, he's the one really, the guy who actually has gotten real work, and all he does is just shower him with compliments and then makes Gillian Jacobs, who's a young, just starting out actress there, feel like shit constantly. Yeah. And you're just like, God, you're such a prick. And the only saving grace to this film at all is when he goes to his parents' house for uh, Hanukkah. And yes. <laughs> it's so absurdly uncomfortable, this whole sequence. And there's this whole thing where they're singing. I don't know if it's a real traditional Hanukkah song or not, but they're singing all together. Like someone's playing on the piano and everyone is singing this very disparate group of people in this house. This uh, Hanukkah song that's bizarre and It's just the most awkward, uncomfortable thing you've ever seen. Uh, I technically laughed at one other sequence
1: where he steals a grandma. Uh
0: Uh-huh.
1: And that's the only saving grace the movie has, is that those two two two-minute clips.
0: I mean, like, the stuff where he's trying to date, uh, he's he's trying to date after uh, his wife leaves him, this uh, African-American woman, who's very sweet, uh, and... He is just incapable of knowing how to communicate with anybody else. He thinks he's being like woke, and instead, he's like that guy who goes. He's like one of the characters in Get Out, the white guys, you know, <laughs> hanging out with these. Her whole family at like a cookout.
1: And so, like, when she came into the movie, is actually I got really hopeful. Yeah, I, I thought that this if, is what's going to redeem the turning him. Point, and yeah. then he starts understanding if he doesn't necessarily change or learn how normal humans interact, at the very least he finds something that enables him to not be just an absolute utter shit. And no, No. he just continues to be the worst person ever.
0: Yeah, there's no light at the end of this darkness tunnel. And I I just found it, it was, you're, like, you're supposed to be laughing at him, and I'm just I don't find Are him you? funny. I find him just pathetic and sad and oh. wish he would, like, go acknowledge he has a real problem and get professional help. Yeah. I didn't find it funny to watch him.
1: And that's the thing. Like, I, I don't like watching movies where I laugh at people. Mm-hmm. I, I want to watch a movie where even if the character is unlikable you can connect with them on a human level right. and you want to watch them better themselves.
0: Yeah, there are films, lots of films that are like that. Like, I think a good one that's actually making my top ten list this year <sighs> is Brigsby Bear. Yes! A, yeah, which you're oh just like, gosh. oh, what a spectacular, fun, really rooting for this guy who, you know, may not be autistic per se, but he's been sheltered from all humanity in this weird imaginary world his parents have created for him. And now he's in his 30s and re- going into the real world and you're rooting for him so hard. And and the movie pays off, you know,
1: that that's what this is. This is the movie on the flip side of Brigsby bear. Yeah. Everything that Brigsby bear does to make that character likable and interesting and enthralling. This does the opposite.
0: (laughs) Well, let's move on to something that is exactly the opposite of our reaction to lemon. (laughs) Uh, And it's a movie. I think we both took us both by surprise and going, wow, that was fucking a, that's a classic. How have I never heard of that? And this is the Mexican 1966 Western film Time to Die or Tiempo de Morir. Now, obviously, like the Mexican Western has never really made the translation to American audiences as something, even some of the ones that are considered to be real classics, of which there are many, have never really made the Oh, yeah, of course I've seen that, along with all the John Ford Westerns and what have you. Yeah, to be
1: you. honest, except for, like, the Rodriguez movies, I don't know that I've ever seen one.
0: Well, and this guy who directed this, Arturo Ripstein, uh, and it was one of the uh, uh, first films he ever made, apparently. He went on to do a lot of films that people consider to be major classics, but he's always considered this to be one of his lesser movies which blew me away yeah, yeah. So th-
1: there's an interview on the movie and we're jumping ahead a little bit, I apologize, where a film historian talks about uh, this director and his his place in history in Mexican cinema and how he has shaped Mexican cinema and he talks about how he's always kind of regarded this movie as one of his worst and he doesn't really acknowledge it because it was his first and uh, his how all of his first filmmaking experiences were with some of the greatest Mexican filmmakers ever,
0: or and yeah. French uh, Louis Bunuel. B- B- mm-hmm. He That's, was yeah. he worked on The Exterminating Angel as an assistant <clears throat> to him on yeah.
1: there, which was kind of his big break, if that you will. Blew me away because this was one of the gems of the set this week, and mm-hmm. what this actually. This whole week was you filled with more good movies than bad, I thought. Good. And this was one of the better ones.
0: Agreed. Uh, the plot here is this guy, Juan, is returning to his, his little hometown after being in prison for 18 years for killing a guy uh, in reportedly cold blood. And you're like, uh-oh, you're expecting something very different as the general reaction. But everyone's reaction is, it's so good to see you, you're going to want to leave immediately. That guy's sons are going to fucking murder the shit out of you. Like, they're going to kill you if you stay. And he's like, I don't have any bad blood with the sons. I don't want anything to happen, but this is my home. I'm going to reclaim my house, of which almost nothing is left, uh, and try and hook back up again with the the girl I left behind, who since had gotten married, had a kid, and now is a widow, Uh, Everybody is so like, he's such a great guy, but he needs to get the fuck out of here. And it's a study of this guy who's like, has really, as we learn gradually, what actually happened with the murder of of this guy's father, that it's history repeating itself, that this guy's always been a good guy. He was just maybe a little more hotheaded then than he is now, but he's just enormously patient and saying, this will just all blow over. It's going to blow over. And the weird relationship he has with the younger of the brothers, who was too young to remember any of it happening, uh, who is kind of fascinated by him. Who's like, oh, he's a good guy. When they first meet, they don't know who each other is. And he's like, hey, take my horse's bridle if you need it. You can just return it whenever. You know, like right off the bat, they have that weird connection. Well, and that's the thing. Like, so the
1: main character from second one is just, He's just a sweetheart. Yeah. You get the sense that it, even though the, there's talk of this event and you you see it from the brother's perspective, what they think happened. And so you see this guy is kind of a, maybe a once badass, like um, Clint Eastwood was in Unforgiven. Right. But from when you watch the actual main character, he's just this affable, really sweet, intelligent, kind, guy who just is trying to get back
0: to life much beloved by all the people who used to know him except for these sons sons. like everyone who uh, no no one has anything but nice things to say about him including saying yeah he it was a really fast gun gunfighter if he needs to be he can be a badass if he needs to be no question but he was never really the kind of guy who was an instigator
1: what i wasn't prepared for though is that how slow the movie ended up being. And I say slow. I don't mean that in a negative way. Yeah. Uh, It's very much a contemplative movie where it's about watching this man come into the town where he once was, seeing how things have changed everybody who he's friends with, who talks about him. So wonderfully, they're all the older men, the, the, the patriarchs of this little community. And it's, it's, I'm kind of at a loss for words now, actually, (laughs) Uh, But it's really interesting to watch him come in and be celebrated as this old guard for this shitty life. And he just gets right back to work. Yeah. He starts to rebuild his house. He starts to put his garden, uh, the farm back together. And the movie ends up just being this slow pot
0: boiling kind of tense experience. It's where almost
1: you, where you know it's building to something. It's
0: almost like a weird sort of Western noir, yeah. Where you have the totally fish out of water guy who's like like a good guy and goes is can almost see what his fate is and is just refuses to acknowledge it, but he's heading inexorably towards it nonetheless. And,
1: and, and it he almost does it knowing that it's going to end the way it is, and yeah. he's okay with that.
0: And it almost, like like I said, that ending, the last 20 minutes, almost feels kind of like Unforgiven. Like, I'm yeah. like, I feel like Clint Eastwood saw this movie. <laughs> um, and this was, we didn't even mention one of the most remarkable things about this. This was written by very famous uh, Nobel Prize winner Gabriel Garcia Marquez and novelist Carlos Fuentes. Uh, you know, and this was right before Marquez got to be, you know, everyone in the world knew who he was. So, that's kind of a big deal. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I didn't even know he had ever written a movie. So. I actually didn't either. <laughs> but yeah, this is beautifully shot. It's it's kind of at the end, you just want to sit there and think about it,
1: you know? So it feels like the movie... And when I ended up saying this, it was over Thanksgiving holiday. And it was an afternoon where everyone went to go see... Uh, It was to the zoo, and it was this huge social event with like 30 people, and I was kind of had my fill of people at that point. (laughs) And I took the afternoon off and just kind of sat down, watched this movie, had the house to myself. Nice. And it was the perfect experience for this movie. You want to watch it when you can just kind of have those moments to
0: let it ruminate in your mind. One of my cats is puking in the background. Yay, cats. (laughs) That should be fun. (laughs) God damn it. Uh, This comes with a video introduction by director Alex Cox, who of course did such movies as Reaper. Man and Sid and Nancy. He filmed a little about seven minute interview about his own personal insights and what have you. But, uh, you know, I mean, they're just trying to get somebody famous to go. This is badass. You need to watch this. Well,
1: this is the the thing I was talking about that I watched where he talks about uh, how he felt about it and where he came from. It it was a good watch.
0: Really short. But good. uh, There's a, a commentary track. Uh, which basically is a kind of more talking about how everybody died. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But but yeah, and then the trailer. There's not a lot here in the form form of extras, but wow, this is one of those movies that I guarantee was not on your radar at all, and it really should be. And now this director, Arturo Ripstein, I'm like, wow, if he considers this to be one of his worst, I'm definitely checking out more films in his catalog. I kind of had the same opinion. (laughs) And like, so I, I don't know... I'm
1: torn between this and one other as my pick of the week. Okay, because they're both very different movies that have a very different effect. Yeah, but if this doesn't end up being my pick of the
0: week, it's definitely it's your runner, set, runner first runner up. Yeah. All right, moving on, we have the re-release on Blu-ray of The Man from Earth. This is one of those films that actually got seen through tape trading. It was a little tiny indie film that didn't get a proper release except for a few film festivals. And people just through trading like uh, like uh DVDs of this thing or digital copies of it when it came out in 2007 kind of made it into a major cult classic. So much so that after all these years now, they're going back and, and about to release a sequel to it, which the kind of the main import of this Blu-ray release is there's. Uh, two different trailers and some information about the new film that are coming up. But there's certainly no reason to upgrade this movie to Blu-ray. It was very cheaply made on video. <laughs> it's, it was, you know, a total bottle movie. It's all in one location. But what sells this is the screenplay by Jerome Bixby, who is one of those sci-fi guys who did uh, who did so much good stuff that you didn't know was this guy, including the Star Trek episode uh, Mirror Mirror and Day of the Dove, Requiem for Methuselah, by any other name. Uh, he co-wrote the story that Fantastic Voyage was based on and, and the novel by Isaac Asimov. Uh, he did the 1953 story, It's a Good Life, which was the, uh, the basis for uh, the episode of Twilight Zone that was redone for Twilight Zone, the movie, along with many, many other things and lots of, lots of mad, mad kudos for his short stories in, uh, science fiction over the decades. This was the last thing that he wrote that was actually uh, written as a play immediately uh, uh, in 1998 when he first wrote it. But the story, which focuses on this character named John Oldman, who is a university professor who Ah. is retiring. We're not retiring because he's only in like his mid 30s, ostensibly. And he's he's. He's moving and all his other professor friends are like, you know what? We weren't going to let you leave without us getting a chance to say goodbye to you. So we're coming over, bringing some booze. We're all going to like hang out and just have a nice little goodbye evening. And everyone's like, we don't understand. Why are you leaving? And he's like, mm-hmm. and he finally's like, okay, I'm going to try this. It's probably a terrible idea, but I'm just going to go ahead and say it. I've been alive since the caveman era. I have no idea why. I just have been. I have never died. Uh, and the, and it turns into this very f- deep discussion between all these characters who are questioning, you know, the, you know, immediately like, come on. And then and they're like, first they're like, haha. And then, then, then they're angry. And then they're <sighs> like, well, wait, okay. Hypothetically, if this was true and asking him all the questions you would have to answer, he's like, I can't prove it to you, but I can answer anything you ask me. And it goes into some fascinating places, including religion and qu- physics, and all these things. With this wonderful discussion, with mixed quality of acting, some right. people are really good, some people are just okay. That <laughs> ended up to me being like one of those films that just stuck with me. You know, I'm a little jealous. This is on the list of movies I've
1: always kind of wanted to watch. And mm-hmm. I like the concept of something didn't happen to him to make him immortal. He didn't go through some science yeah. experiment. It's not what magic. it's about. Yeah. It's just. No, I I just kind of never died. I yeah. don't
0: know why. Yeah, they're like, it's uh like they, like, there's a point where a guy points a gun at him. It's like, so if I shoot you now, nothing will happen. Like it's proof. He's like, honestly, I don't know. I think I would die, but I've never had a mortal injury of that sort. Uh, I've just never died from illness or anything else like that. It's like, I get sick, I get better again. And I just don't age. I reached 35. I just stopped aging. Couldn't tell you why. Um, and it's not important. There's a point in the film, you realize you don't care it's not about that. It's a really smart science fiction conversation. And I I had a great time with this. Tony Todd is one of the actors in this. Who's wonderful. Who's so good in his part. This actor, David Lee Smith, who is, I didn't know from anything except this, uh, plays the lead character of John Oldman. And he's really just had small roles on TV. I think he had a small role in fight club. Um, William cat is in this, who always is just a touch too over the top and here as well. Uh, and, uh, Oh, what's his name? John Billingsley? Yes, John Billingsley, who's known for playing Dr. Phlox on Star Trek Enterprise, (laughs) uh, is actually really good in this as well. He's kind of the guy who's having the most fun out of all of them with this. He's like, come on, everybody, relax. You know, does it matter if it's true? This conversation is awesome.
1: (laughs) Yeah, that doesn't surprise me. He was one of the best parts about Enterprise too. Yeah.
0: Um, except for his weird pedophilic relationship with the, uh, with the, the three year old. I don't
1: remember this
0: at all. Yeah, it was like what? Yeah, I just remember he was he was was dating the the alien who's technically only three years old. Oh, that's right. Yeah, it was creepy. (laughs) Anyway, yes, I really love The Man from Earth. It's if you're one of those people who's going to go into this like looking for like production values or for a bunch of sci-fi, like cool shit, like laser guns and stuff and aliens popping out. This is not your movie. This is a conversation film. It sounds like a, it's a really good
1: lo-fi sci-fi film. Like never let me go. And those other movies that are sci-fi in concept, but ultimately they're really just about the human experience.
0: Yeah, exactly. And it explores that experience. And a lot of the ideas we all think about all the time by asking questions of somebody who was there at, pertinent periods in history you know like he was friends with vincent van Gogh and things like that and they're just like oh there's some interesting like he's not friends with everybody famous ever he's like actually i only really knew a few really wait, wait. well-known people does that mean he knew doctor who <laughs> <laughs> no that was just one period of <laughs> time i feel like they need to come back now with a sequel now that like there's an animated film that's so wonderful came out this year called loving vincent that continues the argument which i'd never heard before that van Gogh was actually murdered <clears throat> not did not commit suicide which i read up on it i was like wow, there's actually a lot of evidence for this. But okay. it's just one of those, it was suicide for so long, nobody even wants to get into it, you know? But it's like, oh, well, that's interesting. They need to do a sequel episode. Say, that sounds like a mystery for the Doctor to solve. It does indeed. Anyway, this Blu-ray comes with a brand new feature-length retrospective documentary. It's 88 minutes long that looks into both the, the making of it and then the phenomenon after its release with everybody like, wow, I can't believe this thing had the legs that it did. Like I said, extending on to the point where now we're getting a, a second film, which is it's you it was this was a, 10 years ago and you're like okay the guy who plays john oldman is notably older <laughs> in the trailer you're like okay maybe they should have dyed his hair a little better uh there's audio commentaries multiple audio commentaries uh stuff about jerome bixby's legacy the, from script to screen, the story of the story. Uh, so uh, the mini short film, and I mean like 30 seconds long, Contagion, which is basically just William Cat pulling a gross tentacle out of his eye. I, ew? Yeah, it's really ew, but whatever. Uh, they're done by the producers and directors of The Man from Earth. I have no idea why. But yeah, if you've never seen this, it's, it's definitely a fun movie to track down. And yes, this quality of the thing, it's made so cheaply, it looks like a student film, but it's just, a, you close your eyes and, and, and listen and you're like, wow, that was phenomenal. I'm actually kind of surprised they've never tried to turn it into an audio, like release. Just make like an audio book of it because it seems like that would be perfect for this. Anyway, uh, next up, another one you did not get to see, Harmonium. Uh, this is a 2016 Japanese drama, uh, that, uh, won the jury prize at Cannes Film Festival in, uh, 2016. And it's this guy, Toshio, his wife, Aki, and their daughter, Hotaru. They live a very boring life. There doesn't seem to be a lot of joy in their life, but nobody's angry at each other or anything. But he runs a machine shop out of his garage. Uh, suddenly, this guy comes into their life, uh, Yasaka, who's like, he's like, oh, my God, you're here. What are you doing here? And he's like, it's revealed he just got out of prison after being in prison for a very long time. And... Uh, This isn't time to die. (laughs) And he's like, okay, well, I'm going to take you in and I'll let you live in my house and be my assistant. And the wife is kind of like, whoa, what's going on here? This is a very, and he's like, it's cool. He's cool, man. He's cool. But very quickly, the wife ends up really taking to him as he's very helpful. He's actually present as opposed to her husband. You know, he's there. He pays attention to her. He asks questions and they start forming this interesting friendship as does him and the daughter. And all this, like, okay, this is a very Japanese art drama until basically a shoe drops that's really fucking shocking and changes up the entire okay. course of where the story is going. And I don't want to say what happens because it's, it's really past the halfway point it happened. So I'm like, okay, that would be a major spoiler to reveal, but it's a, it's a very like, why, it's less that it's graphic or anything and more that, why did that happen? You know, and the film doesn't ever really offer you the answers for that, but it it doesn't want to. And it brings everything to such an incredibly haunting, tragic ending. You're just like, Jesus fucking Christ movie. And this is one of those like, you know. The, the Asian bleak thrillers that have become – seem to be – like, have, have gotten started out of Korea and then are moving their way through, like, China and Japan right now where it's like – you know, it's definitely feels like more of a character film but then occasionally does stuff that you're like, Jesus fucking Christ. <laughs> what are you – what are you trying to fucking give me nightmares? Um, I, I think this was good. I, I think it was really good. It's not going to be for everyone. It's not, this isn't, uh, fucking, what is that one with the policeman chasing the killer? Uh, uh the wailing? No, the devil one, uh, blanking on the name of it. Yeah, really, really famous one, uh, Korea, South Korean film. It's not, it's not, no one would call this a horror film, right? It's a drama that has some, that super fucked up dark shit ends up happening in. But, um, uh, it's, so if you're, it's, it's for more people who, who, who love very thoughtful, sort of slow burn as hell thrillers. You know, like people who like Icelandic murder mysteries, I okay. think they really like this. Actually, that that, that sounds thing. really good. You know what I'm talking about? Like yeah. all that, those Scandinavian murder mysteries are always, they're very slow very burn, but then when they get calm, then when they, when they, when they get dark, they're like, fuck, dude. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, kind of like, like, um, uh, Wind River. Yeah. I can say that. Yeah. All right, so let's move on to one we did both see. That's Logan Lucky. This is the latest film from Steven Soderbergh, who had promised he was done making films. Well, he lied. Yeah, right. yeah I knew, we all knew he wasn't going to keep to his stick to his guns on that one.
1: Yeah, everybody who announces their retirement, like even Miyazaki, I think is going Miyazaki lasted
0: like twenty seconds for. Yeah, I'm
1: just like, you know what? Whatever,
0: cool, cool. What? Gene Hackman stayed retired. Yeah,
1: that's yeah very
0: he, true. Yeah, just saying, it does happen. Those guys you forget because you're like, wow, it has been a while since. Then. Oh, wait, <laughs> where are they? Like Sean Connery? Nope, he was done. He did do an animated voice once. Really? Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Anyways. Love and Lucky. Yes. Love and Lucky. I already reviewed this in the the highly suspect review. So you take it.
1: So I think I actually ended up liking this quite a bit more than you did. You Uh, did. Yeah. Steven Soderbergh's a, he's an odd duck uh, for me at least. I find that he makes two kinds of movies. He either makes his deeply personal art films or he makes his more Hollywood kind of fluffy, fun movies. Uh, kind of like the Oceans movies. Sure. And that's what this ends up feeling a lot like. Uh, it's definitely... It's Redneck Oceans 11 it is, is what he was going Redneck for. Redneck Oceans 11, basically. Uh, so it's about two brothers who famously are have bad luck throughout their entire family's history, and they decide to... Channing Tatum
0: and Adam decide, Driver.
1: Channing Tatum and Adam Driver decide to rob the... I'm looking to say the, the NASCAR racetrack. Yeah. Whatever. The yeah. something motor speedway. Yeah. I am not a NASCAR fan. This was no. like watching a foreign film to me. <laughs> Drive fast and turn left. Yeah. Um But yeah, so it's basically this uh, family, as they get together, they plan a heist, pull off a heist, and like any good heist film, there's cons within cons within cons. Uh, I actually watched this once myself, uh, and then watched it again with my wife later on. It was hmm. really interesting to watch it a second time, because there's a lot of random bits of dialogue in the very beginning that you don't get are them actually already carrying out the plan or more. Yeah.
0: Yeah. It's one of those films that takes that moment towards the end to go back and say, here's what you actually saw that you didn't realize you were seeing.
1: Uh, The way I ended up viewing this is what it would be like if, if a family of technically geniuses went through their life without proper schooling. So they're actually very smart people. They functionally can work things out, but they just don't have much experience. and They, they never went through proper school. They don't make
0: good life decisions. They do not I mean, make good life. But decisions. But I would argue that the only reason you could call them like geniuses who never got proper schooling is because this plan is so complicated and so oh genius God, yes. level that that I I couldn't suspend my disbelief. I was <laughs> like, no, sorry, I don't believe these guys could even come close to conceiving this plan.
1: Which is which is fair. Like. Yeah. like I've heard that complaint from you in the initial review and I've heard it from a couple other people and you're not wrong. Uh, it's just that for me, it just kind of worked. Yeah. There is a, there's a plot that goes on with, uh, Charming Potato and his <laughs> daughter, uh, involving her in this beauty contest that ended up just working like hell for me. It got to all of my inner feelings about being a father and, culminates in a really beautiful scene where they uh, sing a
0: song that I'm not going to spoil. I I don't have that same thing. Although I did like those sequences. If they'd had cats that he was taking to like a cat show, (laughs) I might've like fallen. It would have been
1: the acro cats. And and admittedly, I would have liked the movie more with the acro cats in it.
0: Um, I did like Daniel Craig in this a lot, who is playing like this master safe cracker who totally sticks to his his Southern accent in this thing. I was like, wow. And, (laughs) I can't believe you actually, I kept waiting for it to be like, come on, you know, you're not, you're going to fuck it up. And I was like, wow, you did a great job in this.
1: And and his introduction is brilliant where they sit there and they, they try to lure him into the heist while he's sitting in jail for like another two years or six months and uh, has this great reveal where they reveal that his ex-wife told somebody about the money that he had stored away. And so they stole it. And so all his like $100,000 nest egg that he's been saving and sitting on the whole time he's in jail is gone. It's just, oh it was a wonderful scene I cracked yeah, up laughing
0: I agree the, uh, most of the stuff with him is great I was less <laughs> excited about two like the two dumb brothers they hire uh, his brothers played by Brian Gleason and Jack Quaid who never really have much to do here and yeah. they're promised that they're there for a reason I couldn't tell you what it was because yeah. they seem to be terrible at everything that they do
1: I would say that, that they're the one part of the movie that I didn't really vibe with and they're yeah. also part of the reasons that the cons within the cons within the cons start happening and it was an added wrinkle. There's also a character who comes in and like, not even the third act. Yeah. But like, like halfway through the, the, the third, third, third point eight act yeah. <laughs> that just you didn't even need. Not crazy
0: and about Seth MacFarlane in here playing one of the villainous characters. Cause he's playing such a caricature that it's just like, come on, man, even for this movie, you're too over the top. He's such a caricature, but
1: I was okay with him for one reason. And it was the, the very first scene that he's in, and this is early enough that I don't feel too bad about talking about it. Uh, he's basically a giant prick. Makes fun of Adam Brody for only having one arm, which he lost, I think, in a mining accident right before he, right after he got back from the war. Right. So, like, this is a veteran that he's making fun of. And they get into a fight over it. And Adam Brody walks out and firebombs his uh, car. Mm-hmm. But the way they shoot it is you could almost watch that as a lesson in conservative filmmaking, like how to get as much action as possible done with the fewest amount of shots. Steven Soderbergh shoots that in maybe four scenes without any camera movement. And it, Well,
0: there's no denying that in terms of, like, camera work, this is a very good Soderbergh film. It's just in terms of story, I fell off it a bit in character.
1: And that's the thing that ultimately gets me with these movies. It's the same thing with the Ocean's Eleven movies. Like, I know that Ocean's Eleven is a great movie and that Twelve and Thirteen are controversial at best. Yeah. But anytime he gets into this kind of framework where he's not hampering himself with a very specific artistic limitation, I love the way he shoots his films so much that... Half of it is just watching the film
0: work. I'm, I'm. It's weird. I'm half and half with those films. Like sometimes his like his super arty stuff. Half of them I love. The other half I can't stand. With the pop films, half of my love, half <laughs> of my can't stand. It's very unpredictable when he's coming out with something. What what I'm going to think? Actually, one of my favorite films by him is Schizopolis, which is maybe the weirdest thing he ever made.
1: It's the one I've never seen. It's
0: bizarre. It's total like. I don't know. I don't even know who to compare it to. It's, <laughs> it's, it's like they were like, let's make a movie that incorporates all the stuff we used to have to do in drama school, you know, like all the trust exercises and the, 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 the weird ways of talking and things like that and revive, put it into an absurdist world like something the people in the lobster might live in. Sure. It's, it's w- a weird movie. So Long time I, since I've seen it.
1: But one thing I do want to say though is, uh, In this current day and age, it's a a really interesting time to watch a movie that's about the deeply conservative South. Mm -hmm. And it would be really easy, especially with the liberal left leanings that Hollywood tends to go, for a movie like this to be really insulting. Mm -hmm. And it does a good job of both – we laugh at some of the characters. Most of the time we're laughing with the characters. It's funny –
0: and it's also very respectful. Well, it's like, it, becoming, it never really tears into them. It's That's becoming more the new normal, though. I mean, look at movies like Hell or High Water, you know, where you're yeah, like, yeah, same thing, where you're like, okay, this is like, at no point are they making fun of these guys yeah. for being dumb southern rednecks. You know, that's not what we're here for. The only characters who get treated that way here are the two dim-witted brothers, and honestly, it doesn't, they're the type of characters that has nothing really to do about them being in the South. Why? They're dumb. They're no, just they're dumb just, people.
1: They're just shitty people. <laughs> yeah. And, and the, the characters who you follow and you respect to kind of form the core group of actual characters, they're just, Good at their job. And yeah. Th- that's, that's why I think that's why I ended up really liking this is it's a movie about characters who are kind of good people who are good at their jobs.
0: Almost no special features here. Only two short deleted scenes. And then of course the digital copy code that comes with it kind of surprised there wasn't a little more, but I get the feeling this didn't really pull in a lot of bank at the theaters. You so. know
1: what? Like oftentimes <laughs> with this kind of a movie that Soderbergh does, I swear they almost never have special features. Even like, I remember when the oceans trilogy came yeah. out, it's, Here's the movie and maybe a five minute EPK on some
0: directors it. are that way where they just don't care they don't want to over explain it they just yeah. you know
1: the movie just stands for itself.
0: All right, so you did I don't know did you watch Fargo on television? No, oh no, dude, I,
1: not, I want to. You it, should. So it's a show that I I tried to watch it originally and the first season was so awkward and painful for me that I didn't and just recently. Uh, I got the first two seasons from a friend, and I'm probably going to go through them over the holiday weekend.
0: They are wonderful. I'm convinced Noah Hawley is one of the two greatest people working in television as showrunners right now. Him and Brian Fuller are the two best. Legion was my favorite series of the year. Yeah, mine too. Well, that that are Twin Peaks. I'm undecided. Uh, But (laughs) this third and possibly last season of Fargo, not because it's not doing well. It actually did extremely well, but... Basically, Holly's like, look, it's an anthology show. I don't, there's no continuing story. There's threads, like, of characters and families that pick up later, but it's not in any way a continuing story. Like, we might all come back and do it. I might come back and do another one at some point, but right now I'm working on 80 other things and I don't have a story. I'm not going to half-ass it. So. God, that makes me respect him so much. More. Oh yeah. Uh, This is the most modern age of the three shows, which previous two took place in earlier times. It takes place between uh, December 2010 and March of 2011 in Minnesota. (laughs) Uh, The only season that does not actually even ever go to Fargo. (laughs) But what difference does it make? It follows a couple. Ray Stussy, played by Ewan McGregor, and Nikki Swango, played by Mary Elizabeth Winstead. She's kind of like – he was her parole officer. She basically seduced him, and he's – rationalizing their relationship because they're in love. So that should be okay. And he's got a twin brother, uh, Emmett, who also played by McGregor, who is very well-to-do. He's the parking lot king of Minnesota, if you will. <laughs> Which you would have in Minnesota. Yeah, he's married, has kids, has a, like a big house. Uh, he's very successful. And uh, Ray's always had this thing against him, his brother, because there was a stamp that's extremely valuable that was handed down that he's convinced he was supposed to get. And his brother has it and won't give it to him. And so they kind of have this bad blood between them. And her Nikki is kind of trying to convince Ray like, yeah, he totally fucked you. We should totally, totally take advantage of him. And meanwhile, of course, shit tons of other stuff is going on on the outside that will all culminate in lots and lots of violence and horrible things happening to these characters. Carrie Coon, who was nominated for a ton of awards for her performance in this man for two shows this year, she was fantastic in the leftovers as well. Uh, she plays the, the, you know, D rigueur policewoman character (laughs) for the season. (laughs) Uh, and, uh, Uh, David Thewlis plays one of the most bizarrely creepy villains probably in television history here. He's just wonderful in this. And I thoroughly, thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed the hell out of this thing. Really recommend it. Michael Stuhlbarg is great in it. Shea Wiggum. Scoot McNary uh, uh, is in the first few episodes of it. Um, Yeah, it's not as good as season two, which I think is the standout of the whole show. but fuck it, man. It's still really good television. You know, I'm
1: halfway convinced that once every two or three years, Noah Holly gets together with this particular creative crew and plays a game of Fiasco. And it's just like, yeah, you know what? Let's turn that into a show.
0: Uh, yeah, right? <laughs> uh, um, the the cover is great. It's like, a, basically, it looks like a stamp book, but with uh-huh. all the stamps are like characters and scenes from the season. So it's really, really cool. And there's a series of uh, a bunch of like special features that are just focusing on, like, different aspects of it, like uh, like Ray and Nikki, Emmett Stussy and Cy Feltz, things like that. You know, one actor, two characters, that sort of thing. It's not a huge amount of stuff. They're all EP- little EPKs, but, you know, it's enough coverage to give you a basic overall look on at the thing. And honestly, this is something that a show that, assuming I ever have time, I would gladly go back and revisit again. Fair enough. Uh, then we have, <laughs> in a very different direction... <laughs> The Arrow release of the black exploitation horror film in 1976, J.D.'s Revenge. Or, as I like to call it, it's my favorite ghost pimp revenge movie. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> uh, Glenn Turman plays Isaac Hendricks, who's a college student. He's studying to become a lawyer, filling it out by being a taxi cab driver. Uh, he... Is out with his friends and does that goes up on stage to be part of a hypnosis act and he ends up getting possessed by the spirit of J.D. Walker, who was a hustler who was murdered in the 1940s when he was mistaken by his friend for having killed his friend's sister, who he was actually in love with. So uh, there's a whole, like, okay, so those people are still alive and they're kind of everybody involved, including the guy who murdered, actually murdered her and the brother are very well to do. And, but Isaac is like, I mean, he's like a knight of the killer pimps, right? So you're seeing Isaac turn into Ike and he's like,
1: yo, my bitches.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That was the part that, so like, I had a hard time with this movie.
1: So it was, it was fun. Uh, this is very much a black exploitation film in every sense of the word. Yeah. Like, it, it's a ghost pimp revenge film. <laughs> that in of itself... <laughs> and probably it's, the
0: only yeah, one. Yeah,
1: it's, it's worthy of being watched for that. But, like, as a movie, it, it kind of works as a horror film where this guy's getting possessed and this thing's taking over... But then there's the revenge side of it, which could work as well. And I feel like the movie never really knew if it wanted to be a horror film about a guy being possessed by a truly deplorable human being mm-hmm. or a revenge a film. A justifiable about,
0: revenge film. Yeah.
1: And so, like, like I, you would get into the revenge side of things, and then he would turn into this Horrible rapist, abusive asshole, who's like putting cigarettes out on people and ripping yeah, his I, girlfriend. If like
0: he wasn't such a dick, you might have felt some amount of sympathy exactly. for the guy. But you're like, I don't really. I mean, yeah, the other he was innocent of that murder, but probably not of many yeah. others. Or or maybe lose the revenge aspect of it and just make it about him being possessed by
1: this horrible yeah. person. But because it kind of str- straddles the line on both. Neither end up working really great. Yeah. Instead of being a good movie, it ends up just being a fun, weird experience to watch with some beers.
0: Yeah, it it is one of those. I mean, I will say it is fun. It moves fast. It's laughably ridiculous. It's so... It's wildly inappropriate by any terms oh like my we have today. Oh, th- There's a
1: conversation he has with his friend where his friend's just like, look, man, you, you hit your bitch. That's what you got to do. Sometimes you're just going to smack your bitch around and get her back in line. And I just sat there for that whole sequence with my mouth covered going, oh, my God. Uh, yeah. this real and that's,
0: that's supposed to be the good guy telling yeah, him that yeah. It's
1: it's it's not a horrible scene. He's like, you know what? I guess you're right. I guess that is what happens. <laughs> like, Oh my God.
0: Yeah. It's it to say it's questionable is to put it mildly, but you know, you're watching a black exploitation film. You yeah. probably shouldn't be coming into this thing. Like taking notes for your thesis paper on modern feminism. True. Um, true. It, it is what it is. It's an embarrassment. That's fun. Yeah. You it's, know, exactly. And it's, I can't think of a better way to put it than that. <laughs> it's an embarrassment. That's fun. Louis Gossett jr. Has a role in this yeah. as well. Mm-hmm. Young Louis Gossett jr. Um, Um, So I don't know how much there is even to say about it. we really told you what to expect there. There is a 46 minute retrospective called The Killing Floor, uh, which was the original title for the film and as well as a a memorable line towards the end with interviews with everybody involved. Uh, There's an audio interview with actor David McKnight uh, called Here Lies J.D. Walker. There's a gallery, trailer, radio spots uh, and a trailer reel of other films that Arrow is putting out or has put out. Uh, Yeah, it's all right. If you, if you like exploitation films and you have not seen this one, you should see it. Yeah. It's a good, it is entertaining. If you like, uh, like missing hardcore porn films, however, I cannot recommend the film Bat Pussy that for some reason <laughs> the Austin film genre archive has decided to re-release in a Blu-ray with a lot of bonus features. Uh, the, I'll tell you what the reason wait, is. Wait, First wait. off,
1: Please tell me this is about a woman
0: whose pussy turns into a bat. It is and not. Around and eats it's a woman that goes out to do I'm not sure what, and dresses up as Batman and hops around on one of those big bouncing balls. You know, what? to get to, that was like her Batmobile. One of those little remember those balls that had like a yeah, little it. handle on it. Yeah, and you I could it. kids could bounce. That's her her thing. Uh That's... She's bat pussy. Um Okay. And I think this is, like... The reason this is famous is because it's considered to be the very worst pornographic movie ever made. And it was pretty much lost for a very long time, up until the 1990s, where something weird ended up re-releasing it. It got a cult following. um And it's... You know, I mean, I guess if you like... If like your thing is laughing at really terrible pornography, this is definitely the worst porno film I have ever seen in my entire life. like beyond question. Like it not even like not even close to anything else, not even close. And it's like half of it is this wildly unattractive couple in a room alternating, bitching at each other and 69ing. And okay. other half is Bat pussy bouncing around. And, like, she gets into, like, one kind of fight and then bouncing around more until towards the, the last act, they all get in a three-way where basically they both rape her.
1: Okay. Yeah. That's the
0: movie. Chris,
1: if you care. I want to officially thank you for not giving me this movie. There was
0: no way in hell I was going to make you watch this movie. Thank you. I was like, fine, I'll watch it. I think I may have asked for it because it played Fantastic Fest and I didn't realize at the time what it was well, when I, I admit- asked for it. The title, Bat Pussy, that
1: pulls my interest. I thought I'm it might like, be some... That sounds interesting. Yeah. I
0: assumed when I saw the title on the list, it was another weird black blaxploitation movie. I mean, it's so like almost no one knows where this even came from all the names have been excised like nobody knows who who the these people are who were in it or who made it or anything it's a it's a i get it if this is your type of thing this is a complete oddity and that's why people want to see it or have a copy but who in the fuck would want to watch this thing it is so bad. I had to fast forward through it. I was like, uh, Jesus Christ, I do Fair not. Enough. This is the ugliest couple I've ever seen in a porn film, both in, in personality and in an actual appearance, having sex. And ugh. Uh, anyway, yeah, if you do care, there is a commentary track from something weird video, guys. Uh, there's a old educational film from Coronet called Dating Do's and Don'ts. Uh, there is a bizarre short about shoplifters called The Shoplifter. There is a trip to the storefront theater, which is a PSA, uh, asking guys basically to not jerk off in the movie theater. <laughs> um, there's, I know, which might be worth saving alone to put into like a show of something else. There's, uh, Crime smut trailers from the Something Weird archives, and there's a bonus, uh, just under an hour movie, Robot Loves Slaves from 1971. Uh, that is another really bad, totally unwatchable 70s porn film. So okay. there it is, fat pussy, for your, uh, yeah, for your consideration. Eh. <laughs> uh, all right, so let's move on to one we. I think we both really like. this I one. really like this one. This is the Hitman's Bodyguard. Stunned that almost every review I saw of this feels like they just totally didn't get this film of what it was trying to do. They're like, "Oh, it's so dumb and it it's all these clichés." I'm like, "It's supposed to hit all those clichés. It is literally a tribute to the action buddy cop action movies of the 80s and 90s." It felt like what it
1: felt like a really good low-key parody film parodying the lethal weapon movies. Yes. You know?
0: Yeah, not even parodying, just a trip, like pay on. It's a, it's like, we don't get, it's going, we don't get these movies anymore. Nobody makes these movies anymore. Let's make one of those movies. And yeah, it hits like a lot of the big cliches, but it does it winking right at the audience. Like this wouldn't feel like one of these movies if we didn't do this.
1: Well, every character goes off to just does a really good job. They're all foul mouth. The action is great. It's yeah. hilarious. It's is
0: fucking terrific.
1: And, um, uh, and before we get into the plot, I want to say that this is responsible for explaining my, one of the random oddities I found on the internet, which was a video of a car getting into a wreck and being pushed into just kind of a river next to the street, and the car, the other car driving on. Right, right. And yeah. I'm, I'm like, what kind of a shithead does that? And then halfway through this movie, they get to an action scene where that happens, and I actually paused it, rewound it, and went, wait a minute,
0: oh, that was somebody shooting the filming of this movie. It all makes sense now. Right. <laughs> I, I remember seeing that video beforehand too, and going, what the fuck? And then realizing, yeah, yeah that was just from this movie. Uh, Ryan Reynolds plays. Like, you know, top of the line, formerly bodyguard Michael Bryce, who after fucking up a protection gig of a rich and powerful guy we see has gotten to the point where he's living out of his shitty car and pissing in a bottle (laughs) and doing uh, protection, smaller protection gigs. But he's still, I mean, it's one of those things like what happened was beyond his control, but... It fucked up his whole life. It lower got rid of his top rating, so he didn't wasn't getting hired at the same level. He broke up with his girlfriend because he's convinced she's the only person he told, and he's like, "You must have told someone else. You yeah. must have let it slip." There's no way anyone would have known we were there, so they broke up their relationship uh, because of that. But she ends up getting back in touch with him uh, and offering him a gig when she is put on a protection detail to Samuel Jackson, a notorious. Hitman who has agreed to give evidence against Gary Oldman. Who's like a third world Russian, like, like Russian protectorate dictator. Oh, I
1: swear to God was based off of the guy who just recently killed himself. Like two weeks. I ago. know. It right,
0: totally he felt was like that. Exactly. Like him. And it's the same kind of shit. I feel like he totally was. Um, but he's like, if they don't basically get his testimony there, the guy's going to go free to this UN trial, which seems unlikely. Well, And they have but, this
1: arbitrary, like, you <laughs> have to be here on Tuesday at exactly at this exact- 5 p.m. Yeah, it's ridiculous. Or he goes free.
0: But it's the setup for this type of movie, yeah. right? But when, when Interpol tries to take him, they're attacked from all sides. She realizes... There's a mole somewhere, and she's not safe with Interpol. She's going to have to get him to the UN uh, – to the trial herself. So she calls in her old boyfriend, which means, of course, they fight a lot. And also, turns out, Samuel Jackson and Ryan Reynolds have been trying to kill each other for like a decade.
1: So it's, it's interesting. <laughs> with Lemon, we were talking about how like comedies don't often work when you have a bunch of unlikable characters. Mm-hmm. This is one of the rare times that they do because everyone – hates each other. All yeah. the main characters just despise each other. But that's the thing, thing is if, each other out. if the time.
0: everyone ends up becoming redeemed yeah. and they understand that their conception of the other characters wasn't what they thought it was then that's not the kind of movie where everyone's an asshole. You know yeah, what I mean? Exactly. Well, you can start off as an asshole as long as you're not an asshole all the way to the end. They better themselves. And one of the things yeah. that I liked about this movie that kind of came out of left
1: field for me was that Loki ends up being a sort of romance where the whole lesson of the movie ends up being you have to let yourself love and appreciate love
0: (laughs) in its way in its very low key way. But yes, it is. It makes you feel good. It's one of those aspects of it. You're like, Oh, I just feel good. Nice. At the end of this movie and you get what you pay for. You get to see Ryan Reynolds and Samuel Jackson playing the mismatched buddy comedy about as good as anybody's ever done it. You know, they're hysterical together. (laughs) The set pieces are wonderful. Uh, You know, it's just one great action sequence after another. Um, Salma Hayek plays Samuel Jackson's wife who he's basically he agreed to give testimony because they captured her he's like if you let her go free I will gladly hand myself over to you and give this testimony because uh, he's like one of those guys as they, they, she, she calls him he is an unkillable cockroach
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, so she clearly shot her scenes in like maybe two days yeah and it must have been two of the most magical, most humorous days ever oh, because... Her scenes every are amazing. Every second she's on
0: screen is amazing. She's so good. There's a flashback sequence to when they first met where she murders a whole bar full of people <laughs> and done in a romantic, soft lit, like, you know, 70s disco sense. And it's wonderful. <laughs> and Scream's...
1: I swear to God, in any other movie, she would be, like, the ultimate Bond villain. Yeah. Because she's the person who controls the prison. The other prisoner in the cell, there is deathly afraid of her. Yeah. And she gets whatever she wants, whenever she wants it.
0: Yeah. My only downside here at all, and I mean at all, is that the moment they say, oh, there's a mole, you know who it is, because there's an actor who's one of the good guys – Ostensibly, who has never played anything but villains in his entire career. <laughs> and True. you're like, okay, so it's that guy. The one good thing, though, is that instead of trying to hide it for like a third act
1: reveal, yeah. maybe five minutes later, yeah, she, she gets explicitly, no, no, he's the mole. He's walking around with a special the cell phone calling the bad guys. Yeah, the audience yeah. knows. So we didn't have to go through, like, a two-hour film going, well, clearly he's he's the bad guy.
0: Yeah, this thing is a lot of fun. It is one of those, like, look, don't just think about, like, the Lethal Weapon movies and just fuck it, or Or The Last Boy Scout. It's movies yeah. like that. If you love those type of movies, like, this is trying to be one of those kind of movies and nothing more.
1: It's a Shane Black movie not written by Shane Black. Yeah. All it
0: needed to be done was like be set at Christmas, and it would be. A part and it would have, and I would have been shocked if it wasn't. You know? I was like, <laughs> yeah. I felt like even watching uh, this was like, is this going to turn into Christmas? Because really? I'm thinking Shane Black secretly it's, made did this. Did he ghost well. write this? Yeah, or something. <laughs> uh, there's a director commentary by Patrick Hughes who directed it. Out five minutes of doc- uh, outtakes, five minutes of deleted scenes, three and a half minutes of alternate scene of extended scenes, uh, about th- uh, three and a half minutes of alternate scenes. There's a nine minute EPK uh, about the making of uh, overview of the characters. It's about. Four and a half minutes. There's an eight and a half minute that looks at the two female characters in the film. A Lodi Young, by the way, played Ryan Reynolds' love interest in this. Uh, and then there's a eight minute look at the set pieces. It's a very generic series of EPKs. Whatever. This is a movie I'm going to come back to over and over and over again. Absolutely. And even just be like, "What? You never seen the Hitman's Bodyguard? Sit down. We're watching the Hitman's yeah, Bodyguard." Yeah.
1: If, if you like the kind of movie that Lethal Weapon is, rent it, buy it, see it. Just just find a way to get it.
0: Okay, well our final film this week is actually my pick of the week. I'm gonna Same here. Okay, so wow, we're on this I didn't know if we yeah, would yeah. be, because like this movie, originally titled Safe Neighborhood when I saw it at Fantastic Fest, I rewatched it when they sent the Blu-ray because I just love it so much. It's now called Better Watch Out. And this is a very difficult film to talk <laughs> about because I desperately do not want to spoil yeah. What it is about this film that makes you go, "What the fuck"? And it's okay. very early in the film that it's revealed, uh, but agree. I still it's feel like you don't want to spoil
1: it. It's like in the first fifteen to twenty minutes. It doesn't matter though. But like, you don't I agree. We yeah. don't uh, want to say it. Yeah. I, I was talking to my wife about this because I, I saw this on my own when I was in with the family for Thanksgiving, and this was another one that I went, "No, no, honey." you're watching this. And I rewatched this again to show this with her,
0: show this to her. Uh, this is now officially my favorite Christmas horror film right there with you. Yeah. Uh,
1: think of this like cabin in the woods was, although not in the sense that it's that same kind of sci-fi horror, but don't watch the trailers. Don't read the plot description. Don't, don't look into anything. Just if you like Christmas horror movies, if you like really good, interesting horror films that are funny and clever track this movie down and see it.
0: Yeah, it's uh, available on Blu-ray. I believe it's streaming on, uh, I th- I want to say Netflix. Maybe it's Shutter. I'm not sure. But I know it is it is streaming in some places. Um, but Chris Peckover is the director who I got to actually spend a lot of time with after seeing it at Fantastic Friends because I went up to him and I was like, thank you so much for that fucking movie. And we, we've been friends ever since. He's, yeah. he's a really nice guy. Um, but the base premise, without <laughs> spoiling anything for you, is that it's this kid... Levi Miller, uh, who actually played pan in the, the, that recent, uh, oh. yeah, yeah, He's been in a bunch Man, of other stuff I too. Mean. And he, he's one of those actors is about to be like break really, really big. He's oh, already been in some big stuff. He's got bigger stuff he's coming amazing. up. He's so good in this. He and his best friend, Ed Oxenbold, who you've, uh, you've seen in other stuff as well. Like he was in Alexander and the terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day and paper planes and the visit. Um, They're, you know, they're typical like teens, well, Well, preteens, like 12, 13 year olds that, that talk like they're a lot older and smarter than they really are and talk about women like they're a lot older and smarter than they really are. And Levi's got this whole plan to make his babysitter. Uh, Ashley, played by the gorgeous and very talented Olivia Dejange, uh, who also has big things ahead of her. I hope um, so. She was great. Yeah. Uh, to, like, he's like, she's been on babysitter for a while. She's dating this douchebag. I think I can convince her to give me a chance as her boyfriend. And, and you know, and you're like, okay, well, that probably won't work. And if it did, I don't know if I'd want to watch that movie. But uh, he, she's coming over on Christmas Eve. His parents, played by Patrick Warburton and Virginia Madsen. Only downside of this movie is we don't get more Patrick Warburton. But yeah. you know, hey, what are you going to do? Can't go full Warburton. And so it was re- um, one thing that I found really refreshing that I can talk about is,
1: and it was the same thing because this movie has almost the exact same initial setup as the Netflix original Babysitter, mm-hmm. which I've not well, seen. Yeah. It, it's decent. It's good. In both that movie and this one, the parents are actually kind of cool. Like, I, I
0: liked them as parents. They weren't terribly shitty people. I, I felt like I knew both of them. Yeah. You know, like, I have friends that are the parents in this yeah. film. Like, the dad who's, like, a normal guy the rest of the year, except when it comes to the <laughs> one holiday that he turns into a total fucking dork. <laughs> I'm the Halloween guy. Well, He's the I, Christmas guy. I
1: bought into their relationship. It was nice. It's always nice to watch a horror movie where the ancillary characters like that aren't just total shitheels.
0: Yeah. But, like, ultimately, of course, it's Christmas horror. So, it, is there someone outside? Is someone coming and and stalking their house? That's as much as I'm going to say. But I, But, oh, my God. Like... There have been people I knew some people who stopped this movie at a point because they were like I find this offensive. And I was like you didn't keep watching because this is about an incredibly strong character who I think at no point do you ever say she's anything but like a Jamie Lee Curtis, you know? No, no. She's uh, amazing.
1: Every character the everybody in here every is Every character in this you totally buy in they they are great at what they do. And and actually and so this is going to be doubly hard to say with that anything, thing, but I'll, I'll manage it. This is one of the few times I've watched a horror film where I really, really want a sequel. Yeah, like just, just give me one more,
0: and just, just like, like, let, like, me, let me
1: tie everything up, and it'll be wonderful, and it'll be happy. Because there's
0: about a billion things you could see happen if they wait five years to make it. Yeah, you yeah. know. And,
1: oh, I want one another one.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, um, yeah, I, shit, man. I, I, if we were having a spoiler discussion, I would have tons of stuff to say. But nice all I can favorite. say is, please, 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 if you like Christmas horror, uh, like with definitely a strong amount of... There's some kind of very controversial moments in this, to be sure. Yeah. There, but there's a lot of humor cool. that's really funny as well. Uh, give this movie a shot. And,
1: and, and one thing, just to caution viewers on, uh, so I'm one someone who has a really hard time with awkward humor. Mm-hmm. Uh, just that... That kind of cringy, oh my god, they're gonna do this, and you know they're gonna fuck it up, but they're gonna do it! Uh, and there's quite a bit of that in kind of the initial 15 minutes. Yeah. And I had a hard time with that, but it doesn't last very long, and once you get through it, it just becomes so, so much more interesting film, and even as it recontextualizes everything, as things continue to happen, uh, it works, and, and one thing I like too is that the what we're dancing around. Uh, it seems like it's the kind of a twist movie like Shyamalan makes. It's not. It's not. Um, uh, I mean, there is a twist, and it is a twisty turny movie. But it,
0: oddly, is the twist happens like twenty minutes into yeah. it. Yeah, and, and then it's just watching that play
1: out. And it's one of those things that, like, even knowing it, it's still an amazing movie. Yeah, it's just that. You want to have that
0: surprise. Yeah. Because it was so startling to me watching yeah. the film. I was like, did not see that coming. So, right. yeah. Um, it comes with only one extra, a 50, but it's a 52 minute making of. It's, it's, Which it's, I, I would argue too exhaustive. <laughs> it's like this is definitely of making ofs a little on the tmi side um not that you get grossed out by it but just like okay this is going so much into detail i'm like i don't need that much detail yeah but you know whatever it's nice to see chris again he's wearing his fantastic fest shirt the whole time so i was like happy to see that uh highly recommended best of uh, best christmas horror film best of a digital noise show this week
1: yep agreed
0: all right. Well, that brings us to the end of digital noise. Thank you for listening. Um, it seems unlikely that I will get another one out before Christmas. It's possible. I, I call it unlikely. Um, but if I don't, please have a great Christmas. Be safe out there. If you're going to drink, do it at home in the company of friends in a crackling fire. Amen. Amen. Um, and, you know what? Do what I'm doing. I'm doing, like, an Orphan's Christmas in my house. You know, get a bunch of these Christmas offbeat movies that are out there. There's lots of them to pick from. Rare Exports is another really good one Krampus? Krampus is good. A Christmas Horror Story is really good. Yeah. Uh, there's a, there's quite a few good ones out there. I, I usually put together a mix of, like, Christmas-themed short films. Like, there's a lot of horror Christmas short films out there. Some really good ones. I just saw a really good one at Other Worlds Festival. I'm now officially adding to the queue. Um, but, like, the one – have you seen the one where – jack in the box like the the figure of jack in the box like the yeah. the, the character is like being stalked by ronald mcdonald on christmas night <laughs> no you know like it's it's a it's a home invasion horror movie but that's with delightful. like ronald, Mc, ronald mcdonald as the home invader it's really good um and that's i believe adam Gre- green made that horror director adam green okay. but yeah do one of those things with your friends it's all about having fun celebrating the things that you love and the people that you love please do that and uh yeah if, and if you love us don't forget to become a subscriber because that helps a lot most definitely and don't forget to buy all your christmas presents through our digital <laughs> noise links because that gives us a kickback that also shows some love so do that
1: yeah buy your christmas presents have a merry christmas to all
0: i love you aaron
1: i love you chris (laughs)